Welcome to Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners, the podcast for dentists who are ready to take their practice to new heights. Join your host, Stan Kinder, who has worked with the profession over four decades and now represents practice owners interested in exploring a relationship with a DSO. On the show, he explores ways to grow your income and increase the value of your practice. Expect thoughtful conversations with influential guests who are pioneers in the dental industry. From insightful dental consultants to brilliant marketing experts, from accomplished dental practice owners to innovative dental manufacturers, this podcast will bring you a diverse range of perspectives. Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners is here to equip you with the tools and information you need to thrive. Your practice's future begins right here. And now, here's your host, Stan Kinder. Welcome to another episode of the uh, Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners uh, podcast. Try saying that real fast three times. Uh, I'd like to welcome my guest today, Dr. Tom Snyder. I've known Tom at risk of dating both of us uh, since the early 80s. Tom has worn uh, many hats over the, uh, the course of his career in dentistry. Most recently, he has led uh, Henry Schein's practice transition groups and continues to oversee their uh, valuation analyses. Tom, uh, when I first met him, he was on the faculty at the school of the University of Maryland Dental School and was as far back as the early 80s on the lecture circuit talking about computers and dentistry before computers and dentistry were even a thing. My goal in these podcasts, Tom, is generally to expose the listening audience to experts and leaders in in the field of a variety of disciplines that will help our listeners sort of achieve a higher level of success. I've long held the position that uh, every dentist, uh, no dentist lives forever, and every dentist at some point in their career um, has to contemplate transitioning their practice equity. And so I think you're uh, a very timely expert to speak uh, to that topic. Kind of a good starting place, Tom, might be for you to tell us just a little bit about, you know, what your journey in dentistry has been and the kinds of things you've been doing most recently. Sure, Stan. Well, thanks uh, for having me on this podcast. I'm looking forward to sharing my experiences with the uh, audience. Yes, I have seen uh, a lot of things in dentistry, as you referenced. We as we do go back a long time, yeah, University indeed. of Maryland days, that's for sure. And I left uh, dental education. Here I was, uh, you know, mid-30s saying, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I had an MBA from Wharton, so I had a nice shiny, shiny credentials. But uh, I was always intrigued about getting into the business world. So over the course of my career, uh, I've, you know, founded and owned several businesses. Uh, some were in the technology-related area, as you referenced, early on. But even early on, I started valuing dental practices. Uh, probably did our first valuation back in the mid to late 80s when it was re- relatively simple process. Then uh, the last company that I started back in the 90s, I sold to Henry Schein in 2010. And so I've been with Henry Schein uh, since then as a senior director. And uh, as you correctly stated, I oversee our valuation department. We prepare over 500 valuations a year. So we do quite a volume. We have a sales force nationally in our group. It's called Henry Schein Dental Practice Transitions of about 70 representatives from coast to coast, all time zones in the United States. So we see a lot of things. 
And uh, I also, over the last 25 years, got involved in doing partnerships, which are very tricky. They're, quite frankly, a lot more difficult than transitions, which, you know, uh, we're going to be talking about today. But a partnership is a transition, and I specialize in that. And uh, that's a lot of fun, too. So I like working with our new reps, training them, and I still enjoy talking to doctors. Uh, after all these years. And now that we have this kind of technology, it, it adds a, another layer of personalization, which we didn't have. It used to always be telephonic. Now I can see everybody and they can see me and that adds a lot. It allows me to, to have a reach all over the country. So uh, I've been very fortunate that uh, I've had the opportunities I've had. So now I'm ready to share my experiences with the group. Great. Great. That's uh, super. You know, I, I know over the years you've seen, I mean, as you mentioned, you doing 500 valuations a year. You've probably got more experience in this arena than virtually anybody else in a business that I'm aware of. I'm curious what sort of trends you see in a sort of valuation domain. And I guess from your perspective, what are some of the key drivers of, uh, you know, a higher value as opposed to a lower value? Sure. Well, the biggest thing about valuations, which most doctors don't understand, is it's highly variable based on where you practice. You know, it goes back to my old MBA days, supply and demand, microeconomics. And where you have a lot of demand, you have higher prices. And it, it translates, trickles down right to the dental world. So obviously, the most important thing to start out with, with any valuation, is its location. If you are in a rural area, small town, you can't expect the same type of value that you could anticipate in a metro area, suburban area, even a small city where there's, there's more doctors. And that's really what it boils down to. So that's one of the big drivers. Uh, another driver, which, of course, the DSOs look at, uh, importantly, is cash flow. It's what type of income has that business generated over a period of time? Because at the end of the day, if I'm buying your dental business, yes, I'm buying your goodwill. And yes, I'll be now custodian of the patient list. I'll be taking over your location. But I'm going to be inheriting your income stream. And hopefully I can build upon that so that I can use to pay my bank loan for my practice acquisition. So the cash flow and the profitability are another big driver. And another one that's it's important, but not as, as, as important, is the actual physical plan itself. You know, is the practice up to date with technology? Uh, is there enough scale there? Meaning are you trying to sell a two or three treatment room facility with no room for expansion? versus one that may have three or four treatment rooms and maybe room for one more or even larger still. Because, you know, as we'll talk about, I'm sure the, the profession has been changing. It used to be a solo practice model, about 90% back in the day when I started this journey. Now it's down on a national average to under 40%. So that's a big, big change. So that has an impact on values as well. So those are the things that I think really kind of drive value. There's a lot of other things, but those are the main points, I think, that create the variation. And one of the things that's a big danger is someone reads in an article in a journal that practices sell for 70% of, or 80% of last year's gross. It may be true, but where I live in Northern Virginia, 
90 to 95% is a common number. Why? Because there's a lot of dentists. A lot of people want to live here. There's a big population. Washington area is relatively recession-proof, as you know, because you live in the area too. So that's a big driver versus a vibrant Bangor, Maine, where there aren't that many dentists. If I get 60 to 65%, I could be very happy. So I, that, to me, is a real important takeaway for our, our listeners to understand that it is a regional-based uh, situation. Yeah, yeah. I've also sort of long uh, held the position that, you know, aside from some of the things that you mentioned, one of the primary drivers is the cash flow that the practice generates, because ultimately that's going to determine what the buying dentist can afford in terms of servicing a bank loan in order to acquire the practice and also to pay themselves an income. And uh, obviously in today's world, uh, there's also that student debt component uh, uh, very often uh, an element in the in the equation. I know that having seen some of your valuations in the past, that generally you you do your valuation using several different methodologies. Yes. Take an average of those. Can you speak to that process uh, for a minute? Yes. Uh, Our valuation protocol follows the protocol set up by the National Association of Certified Valuation Analysts. As a matter of fact, uh, one of our key people who works for us, uh, she is a, a CVA certified valuation analyst and as such our valuation reports follow the protocol set up by them by that i mean you're required to use three different approaches the three approaches we use are called the market approach income approach and asset approach and within those approaches there's there are different types of formulas that are used for example in the market approach we use it's called the guideline transaction method that simply means that we have databases Goodwill Registry and Pratt Stats, where we extract data regionally, nationally. So we look at a practice as we review the tax returns and, and profit and loss statements, uh, what's profitability, where it's located. And from that, we use a database saying, well, this practice is in the range of 75 to 85% in this region. So we come up with a market approach. It really just looks at uh, almost like comparative sales in real estate. That's probably the right. best example. Right. Second method, which is one that's most critical, is the income method. And there's two different formulas that we can use without getting into the weeds called the capitalized earnings method or discounted cash flow method. Uh, During the COVID period, we used discounted cash flow because we were very uncertain of the future relative to practice growth and its impact with closures. However, we're back to the uh, capitalized earnings, which basically looks at uh, where our practice is, what kind of a growth rate, and we come up with an income stream and we capitalize that. We look at risk factors and included in that, is an EBITDA calculation, uh, an EBIT calculation, as well as what we call seller's discretionary earnings, which is cash flow. So that's an important component. The third one is the asset method. And what that looks at is the goodwill of the practice in the region. Again, we refer to the databases. And then we look at what we call the market value of the tangibles, your leaseholds if you're a tenant. We look at equipment, technology, and a a modest uh, amount of inventory. We don't do an equipment appraisal. We actually use the tax returns, asset detail report, and apply formulas based on our experience in the dental space. And then, as you correctly said, we use the average of the three methods and we come up with a a number. Now, um, goodwill is obviously a fairly uh, significant component. How do you approach uh, valuing goodwill? Yes. uh, What we typically look at is in the net asset method, 
we have calculated the goodwill of the practice and the tangible assets. However, since we're using three methods, what we typically do to come up with the goodwill, if we're selling the practice, we're also brokers, we come up with an initial allocation, which the accountants then can massage for the sale of the practice, right? So what we do is we look at whatever the transaction value that we come up with. Let's say it's a million dollars. And let's say that from our net asset method, the value of the tangible assets were 150,000. So we would simply take the 150,000 subtracted from the million, and that would give us a target goodwill number. In my experience over the years, I would say all the valuations we do, it's a good rule of thumb to say, unless you have brand new out of the box equipment, that typically the allocation breakdown is 80-20, meaning 80% of the allocation is goodwill, 20% are tangibles. Now, of course, that could vary in a smaller practice with what I call museum quality equipment. It may be 90-10, or in a newer practice, it could be 60-40 or 70-30, and that all depends. But at the end of the day, when uh, the allocation occurs, since we're not accountants, we just give guidance, then the respective accountants will massage the, sure. the allocation and sure. the sale. And I, I know that's often, um, you know, an element of negotiation between buyer and seller because yes. of the tax implications. Correct. Because how the allocation of purchase price uh, is agreed to determines, you know, what level of tax liability uh, ends up being distributed uh, between buyer and seller. Um, tell me a little bit from your perspective, you know, how soon in advance of sort of a targeted transition date, a practice owner should kind of be thinking and planning for that eventual transition. In my experience, very often people, um, you know, if you look at the life cycle of practices, there's sort of the growth phase, then there's a plateau phase. And very often the dentist, late career dentist, decrease their time and commitment to the practice. And, you know, there's a little bit of a deterioration in the revenue and the profit. Um, and that's when they're selling it. You know, when the asset is, it's a little bit like, you know, buying and selling a stock. Um, you know, when the stock is declining, definitely not the best time to sell. For sure. Yes. Well, our ideal, ideal time frame is three to five years. Okay. Uh, most people that I work with kind of have an idea where they want to be in life at that stage, you know, uh, where does that put them chronologically? Well, it all depends, you know, it could be people in their fifties or sixties or and some in their seventies that really put the switch on for transition. But uh, more importantly, one of the things that we like to do is get evaluation done when you start thinking seriously about it. You know, what can you expect in the marketplace? You know, you may have friends that have sold and they tell you all the stories of all the money they got, the percentage of gross to value that they received. But where do you stand? And is that substantial enough? And also from a three to five year time frame, we would hope if you haven't already retained a financial planner, because to to do a transition without having some other guidance, not just an accountant, but a financial planner who can run analyses and say, okay, you want to retire at age 65. Here, you're going to get $600,000 net dollars for your dental practice. What do you have put away? Do you have a 401k? Do you have a defined benefit plan if you're older? What kind of assets do you have? And, you know, today planners are planning out to the age of 100. Right. So 
if you retire at 65, you have another career called retirement. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think people have thought that through, but that's the truth. And I think uh, more than ever, the planning thing, I can't, you know, I've, I've been involved in the financial planning uh, exercise over the years uh, and see how helpful it is to give people a roadmap. Dentists are very programmable people. We learn to do procedures, step one, two, three, apply that discipline to your financial life and get that started now. So those are the things I think that really help having a little advance notice. Now, you can't avoid a catastrophe. And if God forbid something happens to you, then that's a totally different conversation. But by and large, uh, that's the time frame that we like. Got it. Got it. And, uh, you know, aside from the valuation, what are some of the things that in your mind are important to that dentist uh, practice owner to do to kind of position themselves for, you know, an efficient process, if you will? Yes. Well, one of the things uh, that I didn't mention, uh, follow up, another reason for getting evaluation at an earlier point in time is if the value that come up comes up is not something that meets your financial targets, you've got time to take corrective action. What does that mean? That could mean bringing in a, a management consultant to make your systems more effective. Uh, when was the last time you looked at your fees? Could you increase your fees? That increases your top line and your bottom line, increases your value. Uh, overhead control, you know, where are you with ke uh, key performance indicators? You know, do you have a, a very high staff ratio? What can you do to counteract that? And things of that nature. So that really is important. Uh, getting your practice ready is just about having your ducks in a row and having everything organized because what we find when we get into the sales process, that's usually a very narrow period. And, you know, the doctors sometimes are not disciplined enough with timelines for a potential purchaser, meaning, you know, it takes a lot longer to close a deal than it should. And that could be problematic. So, you know, obviously what we do in our business, you know, we, if we broker a practice, we work with the client and making sure they have the discipline to meet the different timelines because there's a lot of little things that need to be done. Something as simple as if you're friends with the landlord who owns the building, uh, what's your lease like? Can you get assignable and can you do it? Now, some people say, well, if I tell my friend I'm going to sell, he'll throw me out. Well, that's individual judgment you have to make. Because a lot of times when we work with doctors, everything's kept highly secret because they're afraid if they tell their staff, they'll leave. So that, that's a whole other discussion. But I think it, it's things like that. Something as simple as credentialing of a purchaser could throw everything off because if the buyer hasn't really gotten credentialed and they're not, they're not participate in your plans and 40% of your revenue is based on the plans, that could really affect your sale price. So it's things as small as that become large and can really foul yeah. up a deal. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think the, uh, the the sort of advice to pursue conversations with a financial planner are so critical. You know, I've been a reader of the trade press for years, and you so often hear the statistic that fewer than 10% of dentists are able to retire at the age that they hope to because they're just simply not financially positioned uh, to be able to do so. Correct. And so, you know, I think it's, it's important to sort of take an inventory of where you are today at point A 
and where you want to get to in terms of point B at exit. Um, and as you say, in a timeline that, that at, you know, to the degree that some things need to be tweaked or improved, you give yourself a little bit of calendar to be able to do that. Precisely right. Yep. Yep. In your experience, you know, once a practice is listed, mm-hmm. and I know this is highly variable depending on location, the specific practice and so forth, but I'm really sort of looking more for an average across the board in terms of the time it takes from a practice being listed to being able to close a transaction. I would say uh, in most cases, six to nine months is a good indicator from start to finish. You know, once the buy, once you have the candidate, obviously if you're still fishing for candidates and you have no one on board, that's a different story. But that's the timeline that we see because uh, what most selling doctors don't realize is that once someone makes an offer to buy your practice, uh, they have a right to do due diligence. And due diligence, depending on who's buying, can be quite an exhaustive process, right? I know in the DSO world, it's a big deal, quality of earnings and things Absolutely. of that. They, you talk about drilling down. They don't. Even, they want to look at all the QuickBooks reports and the payroll reports and everything else, whereas most of the private sales are usually done on tax returns and maybe profit and loss statements. So it's a totally different thing. So yeah. it depends on who you're selling to. And of course, the other issue is getting financing. One of the problems is, you know, a buyer gets all excited, makes an offer, but have they ever applied for financing? And what if they have a problem? What does that mean? That could extend the period of time for the seller to go to closing because they haven't gotten the practice acquisition loan or they have to go to another bank or whatever. So uh, those are the kind of things that, you know, that's why this uh, six to nine month time frame because plus there's so many things that have to be transferred you know little things like software licenses uh if you have a lease on uh if we still use postage meter i mean silly things right and of right. course the big issue is the lease that is where the rubber meets the road if if you're a tenant and if uh, you're dealing yeah. with a big corporation who owns your building it just makes it more difficult versus your buddy who's a physician who owns the condo and you have one of the condo units you know, yep. It's always easier if you own your own building to transition, but when you sure. when you have a lease, that can take more time. Yeah, as you know, Tom, uh, I've got close to 15 years of experience on the DSO side, generally in senior M and A roles, where I was the guy, you know, negotiating the transactions to acquire practices on behalf of the DSO, and invariably the thing that um, created the most delays and hung up transactions is just what you described. It was transfer of leases. And, you know, while that, that could be the number one priority on behalf of the buyer and the seller, um, you know, in terms of the landlord, it may be their hundredth priority. And, right. you know, so they just don't treat it with the same urgency as, uh, as the principles in the transaction. Yeah, and, and to make it even even worse, we've had some situations where there's been a holdup on the lease and the buyer has a rate lock commitment on interest, freezing the interest for a period of time, and that timeline expires. And the bank says, well, we'll give you another rate, but unfortunately, it's going to go up a half a point. Well, yeah. depending on what you're buying, that could be a substantial difference. So that's another thing 
that the whole issue of having a, a schedule, a timeline, you know, a coordinated approach between buyer and seller is so critical because, you know, a deal could get blown because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I'm seeing in the current environment, clearly uh, with interest rates uh, having increased so dramatically over the course of the last year, year and a half, and the cost of capital just uh, going through the roof, it's really impacted a lot of buyers' ability to manage the financing in the way that they were able to do historically when rates were much lower. I'm curious if you've kind of seen that impact uh, as well through uh, the practice transitions group in your own work? Well, you know, uh, right now the interest rates are, I think, in the seven-ish range, you know, higher or lower. Um, but if the buyer is qualified, you know, banks will still loan money. Uh, right. However, we have noticed that if a deal is, I shouldn't say marginal, but has some questions to it, whether it may be uh, something with the seller, if the seller is going to remain as an employee and, and or whatever there may be, sometimes we're seeing a little bit more of a seller holdback, meaning the bank says, well, we'll take 80% of the risk and you, Dr. Seller, take 20%. And oh, by the way, if if some of the things we're a little concerned about don't occur, then we'll cash you out in a year or two. So that's showing a little bit more caution. But uh, the way I look at it, these dental lenders have to make money. And how do they make money? Selling, financing dental practices. So right. as you know, back in the day, uh, there was no such thing as lender financing. All the sellers held notes. Why? Because interest rates were 14, 15, 16%. Which yeah, this I generation, guy who, my, my, the first house I bought, the mortgage was at uh, uh, 13 and a half. Yeah, mine was 16% when I moved yeah. to New Jersey. So it, it's insane. No one believes that they think we're making it up, but it's true, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> so not, not to, uh, to belittle a 7% interest rate, but double digit interest rates when you're buying yeah. a house or a business, that's a significant interest cost. You know, historically, my experience was that there were a, kind of a finite group of lenders that specialized in practice financing. I'm curious, who are the lenders that you most commonly see? Because that might be uh, something that the listeners uh, uh, could benefit in hearing. Yeah, the lenders that we see in the in the marketplace, for the most part, uh, Bank of America, Provide, TD Bank, Huntington Bank. Those seem to be the uh, the major players, but there's others out there. You know, we're finding uh, sometimes, uh, depending on what the transaction is, a smaller bank may take on that loan now uh, because mm -hmm. they see that they, if they do their research, they find out that, you know, dentists do not default on their acquisition. Right. It's like, I think it's like less than one and a half percent compared to somebody who's financing a fast food franchise restaurant or a regular restaurant or a bar or Whatever. My point is that I think other lenders have seen the, the big lenders play in this space and have done very well. And their port some of these lenders' portfolios are quite substantial. And there's a lot of, you know, regional banks out there that, you know, that crop up. But on a national level, those are some of the names. Uh, uh, PNC is another bank that that's that's is in that. Uh, they actually one of the, they were one of the first ones to be in the lending business you know when uh, we we were in business back 
in the 90s, PNC was a big player in, in the market which we lived, which was the South Jersey, Philadelphia area. Big mm-hmm. market. So, but again, there's money out to be money out there to be loaned, and uh, you know if the buyer is qualified. And what it boils down to is cash flow. Yeah, what's exactly. the cash flow? That, that's what I was going to say. Uh, All about cash flow. Ultimately, these are cash flow loans. Uh, no question. And if the practice economics will support it, uh, generally you can get the financing. Uh, as long as you you've got uh, you know a clean credit history and yep. uh, you know there's no red flags that jump up in that regard. That is correct. Yeah. So uh, you know, for the, uh, for buyers out there, you know, why wait? You know, who's will interest rates go up next year? Who's to say? Will inflation right. continue? Who's to say? I think no one can predict anything right now. But if you have a if you're out there thinking about buying a practice or worrying about well, gee, if it goes to seven and a half percent. A half a percent over a course, a career of 25 years doesn't mean anything. If you're buying a practice, let's say, is netting four or five hundred thousand dollars, you know, and you start looking at it realistically. And that's what we try to do in counseling our our buyers that sometimes they they don't understand. They don't don't have the expertise. This is the first time they've gone out to borrow money for a big business venture. So we try to counsel them and show them, hey, you know what, the half percent. Why wait? Do it now. Because I always, when I lectured at Penn Dental, I always told the dental students, think 25. By that I mean, if you're thinking of buying a practice, think about a 25-year career cycle. That may be a little bit shorter than some, but that's a probably average one. So 25 years, and when you're thinking of borrowing that money, you're going to borrow it over usually a 7- to 10-year period, and hopefully you're going to grow that income stream. So think about your career earnings, because you know, if if somebody is netting out four hundred thousand dollars, four hundred thousand dollars over twenty five years is what ten million dollars, give or take. Yeah, and that's that's not even increasing fees. So I and when I I used to show examples of this, and people would say, "Wow, it's not a rationalization; it's a reality." That's why people buy businesses return yeah. on investment. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I would uh, offer is, in my experience, very often the buyers increased revenue just simply as a function of their being younger, more energetic, very often trained in a broader spectrum of procedures. And so they're going to, not uncommonly, they're doing things in the practice that the seller didn't do or were first out. Excellent Um, point. Yep. Very true. And so that, you know, the economics uh, definitely take a tick upwards that even further make that half percent or percent a non-factor. Yeah. I always told people, if you're buying a practice just for dollar for dollar, don't buy it. If you can't increase revenues, like you said, because as you indicated correctly, a lot of times the older doctors just don't want to re- do some of the procedures they did when they were younger. Right. And one of the first things that they refer out historically has been endodontics. Right. Yeah. So you bring a, you know, you and simple oral surgery. So you bring in someone who's got some surgical skills, maybe in their residency training, maybe they're in the military. They can come in and, and you know, all of a sudden, you know, it's same store dentistry. Instead of going to all the specialists, you can keep some of those procedures in-house. And exactly that's how you increase your top one. And yeah. Also, and I don't know if this uh, would resonate with your own experience, Tom, my experience over many years of working with a profession is that not uncommonly, the most successful practices had a tendency to work with 
outside consultants, coaches, mentors. You know, they didn't just sort of lock themselves inside the four walls of their practice and uh, and do their own thing. They sought some expertise, advice, and counsel from folks who could help sort of point them down that uh, pathway to growth. Yep. I couldn't agree more. There's a lot of good folks out there, good coaches. Uh, there's also clinical coaching too, you know, to improve your service mix. A lot of programs where doctors can can learn a new set of skills to add to the, their uh, their portfolio, so to speak. So yep. there's lots of opportunities that, you know, when you get your DDS or DMD, it's just the beginning of a career of learning because that's why they call it the practice of medicine and the practice of dentistry. You know, you do things maybe you never saw before. Now that you've seen them, next time you'll do it, maybe you do it a little differently. You know what I'm saying? It's just, that's what it's all about. So uh, the business side of, of dentistry uh, is something that most dental schools just don't have the time to teach. So our doctors come out with little or no business experience, yet they're held accountable. <laughs> yeah. Also, one perspective I have is very often I saw dentists who were fairly average middle, middle of the road clinicians who enjoyed extraordinary levels of success largely because they were masters of the communication, sort of uh, patient relationships, yep. and those things extraordinarily well. And then there were, on the other side of the coin, many dentists I've known who were exceptional clinicians that I would go to, I would refer my family to, who struggled to make a living yes. because they didn't master that other side of the the equation which is a little bit of a conundrum. And I don't think, you know, most young dentists coming out of school are exposed to that kind of perspective. They're not. One of the other things that I've often uh, counseled uh, sellers on is these are sort of once in a, very often once in a lifetime transactions with, you know, the, the professional asset that they've spent their entire careers building it's not the time to, uh, you know, use your brother-in-law who's a real estate attorney to handle the transaction for you. You really should seek out somebody who is experienced in dental practice transition specifically so that you can know that you're getting the advice and counsel that makes sense. I don't know if you have a particular perspective on that. Oh, I agree 150% with what you said. You know, uh, we have seen relatives of buyers and sometimes sellers you know this is their first uh deal in the dental world and it turns out to be a disaster you know on the buying side it's a cost of doing business to and we would like we prefer people to find cpas dental cpas there are lots of them out there that have you know have worked with other dentists that have worked in particular in sales and so it makes a lot of sense to pay for the expertise because you're right. This is a, usually for many people, it's a one or two time transaction and it's part of the cost of doing business, you know? So yeah. it's makes it a lot easier to get a deal done when the parties know how to do a deal. in the dental world. Right. Right. It's about, um, you know, focusing on the things that are material and important to one or both parties 
as opposed to, uh, you know, there's certain I've encountered attorneys over the years that are more about sort of winding the watch and elevating their their fees and uh, obsessing over, you know, things that are not material, uh, that are relatively trivial trivial in the uh, context of the broader transaction. Tom, I've uh, I've taken a ton of your time. Uh, you, as always, you offer a tremendous perspective based on your experience and background. I really appreciate your taking the time today to talk. Well, thank um, you very much. I have two last questions. I guess one is: Is there any other particular um, pearl of wisdom that you think is important to share that we haven't covered? And then, lastly. If somebody is interested in getting a hold of you sure. uh, or someone within uh, the practice transitions group, what's the best way for them to do that? Certainly. Well, you know, final thoughts, really, it's uh, I want to address this to the solo practitioner because they're still over the age of 50, 50% of the solo practitioners are in that age group, 50 and beyond, whereas the younger doctors aren't. So one of the things that we're passionate about is if you are a solo practitioner, uh, get your practice value. And why do I say that? Because unfortunately, things happen. And if something were to happen, action needs to be taken. And, you know, with the work that we deal with, obviously, we get the phone calls where, you know, a doctor is, you know, has been an automobile accident or, or, you know, whatever. Horrible things happen. So this is nothing new. I've written articles on it. We talk about it in our our programs. Uh, We think that Every solo practitioner should have their practice value and then uh, prepare what's called a, a letter of instruction. And that's basically just a document that lets everyone know if something happens to you, who are the key advisors, attorney, accountant, maybe your dental supply rep could be a transition consultant, whoever it may be, so that action can be taken because if a practice has to be disposed, uh, if you're no longer there, the value drops precipitously. Yeah. So we make that uh, document available to all our all our doctors who take any of our programs. So I'm going to give you my uh, email address. So if, if anybody has any questions, you know, uh, either I can answer them directly or uh, depending on where you're located and what you're interested in, I can put you in touch with one of our team members and they'd be happy to help you. And if any of the audience wants a copy of that uh, a letter of instruction, it's a, a workable PDF. and we can make that available because that's something, you know, apart from, you know, we're not trying to sell evaluation. We're trying to protect particularly a solo practitioner just from catastrophes and recurring. So that yeah. somewhat. Uh, that's a great, that's a great idea. Yeah, I, I thought you know, that I've certainly know. seen that uh, unanticipated health issue, yep. you know, overnight the practice drops in value by, you know, 75, 80%. Um, it's yep. huge. And I guess one final thought on a positive note, we're ending 2023, going into 2024, it's time to make some resolutions. So for those of you folks who are thinking a little more seriously about your career end or maybe starting another career, uh, get a financial planner, start putting things together, come up with a game plan for 2024 and beyond so that you don't have to have a fire drill when it's time to make an exit. Do it in an orderly way because you'll actually maximize your investment in do a lot better for you and your family. Yeah, I come. I think that's very sage advice. Um, it is, and one of the last things that I'll touch on, and I'm sure you've probably seen this as well, 
some of this is driven by, I think, the DSO phenomenon is that you're seeing, um, you know, relatively explosive growth in the number of entrepreneurial dentists that are acquiring practices, building groups, kind of uh, growing. I have long held, even for that solo practitioner who's late career, one of the best paths to dramatically increasing profitability is to acquire or merge another practice in um, because you consolidate overhead. uh, A lot of efficiencies occur and very often is a very good outcome for uh, both sides of the uh, buyer seller equation. uh, As a matter of fact, if you look at COVID, we had a record number of what we call, you know, records acquisitions where the doctor for obvious reasons did not want to return. And instead yep. of just closing the doors, we helped find them a home for their patients, even if the doctor didn't want to practice. So we did a lot of those. And uh, we still have a lot of doctors out there that have smaller practices and that they shouldn't just walk away and close the door one day. That, as you correctly said, there's always someone else out there who's looking for more patients. Yep. And with the, the our, gener- our current generation, they're not thinking solo. Only 17% of recent grads want to be a solo practitioner. The other 83%, well, some of them don't want to be owners. They want to work for the rest of their lives, which is fine. But many of them, they want to have another doctor in their life. They want to have a practice or group and grow. And maybe sometime parlay that into a, a large sale to a, a, another corporate entity or whatever. So it's an interesting time, uh, the dental world, as far as you know what you and I have both seen. It's really... Uh, traveled quite a bit from where it was and where it is now. Yeah, no question. Lots going on. And I think uh, you alluded to it, you know, the demographics in the profession really means that there's a lot of those sort of acquisition slash merger candidates out there um, because uh, the biggest bandwidth in the profession are guys that look like you and me, uh, baby boomers. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Um, You know, as I, as I said to my kids, I've, I've reached that point, that point in life where I've got uh, many more yesterdays than I have tomorrows. <laughs> Good point. Well said. Uh, so. Tom, thanks so much. Really valuable perspective. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, enjoy the rest of the day. Oh, yeah. oh I forgot to give you my email address. My, oh, yes. My, it is tom.snyder, spelled S-N-Y-D-E-R, at henryshine.com. Perfect. So if anybody uh, wants to send me a note, please do so. Yep. I'll repeat that again for the audience. Tom.Snyder, S-N-Y-D-E-R, at uh, henryshine.com. Uh, Tom, thanks so much. Thank you, Stan. Uh, I work with a third-party uh, group to kind of manage the production of the, of the podcast. And once they do the uh, final post-production work, I'll make sure that uh, we get uh, an episode in your hands. Great, great. Well, it was really a lot of fun to do too, you know? Yes, uh, yeah. And uh, always enjoy uh, reconnecting with another old friend from the yeah. early 80s. Yes, yes, indeed. It's, it's been it's been quite a ride for both of us, my friend. Yeah, no question. Thanks, Thanks again. Um, Thanks for the opportunity. The Appreciate yeah. it. Take care, Stan. Uh, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
This has been Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners. We hope you gain valuable insights and practical wisdom that will guide you on your journey to success with your practice. To visit Stan Kinder on the web, go to www.everythingdso.com. If you found today's episode helpful, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an opportunity to hear brilliant insights from dental industry insiders. Remember, whether you're planning your next strategic move, seeking ways to enhance your practice's value or dreaming of expanding your dental empire, we're here to guide you on your way to success.